0: that you gotta invest with people as an LP that are going to be willing to be transparent and make the difficult decisions about, like, hey, I'm gonna tell you exactly what's going on and we're going to change our business plan if we need to, including not paying distributions for a quarter or two so we can preserve cash. The only way that you prevent that is through transparent communications and giving people data. If I don't give you enough data about what's happening behind my walls as an operator, if I don't tell you enough about what's happening there, you are only left to make assumptions.
1: That was Matt Faircloth. And if you haven't heard of Matt, he is an author and wrote the book Raising Private Capital, which was released in 2018, but is now going through an update here in 2023 as the market changes. But Matt, like I mentioned in the show, which you'll see in a minute, is not just an author. He's also a doer. He's been investing since 2005 and has got a great story and was picked up by bigger pockets along the way and that changed everything. So stay tuned and enjoy the show. The limited partner shares in the potentially outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but as a passive investor, and has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. And that is why we're here together. 90% of the millionaires out there built their net worth with real estate. However, 0% of the billionaires are hands-on managing the real estate assets because there simply isn't enough time my name is jake wiley and for the past 16 years i've been investing in real estate and i've learned a thing or two but the most important lesson is how to leverage the expertise and time of others to maximize your investment potential welcome to the limited partner podcast all right welcome partners we're back again for another episode really excited because we're interviewing matt faircloth and matt is somebody that i've actually read Along the way, he's got a book, Raising Private Capital, I and mean, it was instrumental in some of the early raises that I had years ago, and I know that the world is changing, but Matt's not just an author. He's also a doer, so he owns the DeRosa Group that's actually actively investing in, in, in real estate and doing exactly what he talks about in the book, but I can't wait to get in this episode, but Matt, first and foremost, welcome to the show.
0: Jake, thank you for that kind introduction, and thanks for having me here. All right. Well, Matt, you know,
1: for those of my listeners that, one, haven't read your book or haven't heard you before, I'd love to give you the opportunity here at the beginning to give a little bit of background on you. I know you started in 2005 and you've gone through
0: a cycle already, but share your story. Yeah, you and I have been doing this for about as long as as each other, right? So we've seen a lot of ups and downs, right? I started the company in 2005. I'm the co-founder of the DeRosa Group, along with my wife, Liz. And, you know, DeRosa is her mother's maiden name because we just wanted to have like a good... Family shout out name and that. So we gave that's that we we birthed the DeRosa Group in 2005 when I quit my day job when I was working for a company called Ingersoll Rand. Focused mostly on residential housing. We've been a residential housing landlord. That's where our passion is because I feel like that's where residential housing is the simplest in some ways, it's the easiest to. Understand probably the hardest one of the harder ones to master, but it's very good, it's very easy one to get going in quickly. So, we got going in residential housing, and that's where our passion's been since we got going. And since then, we did dozens of fix and flips, apartment building syndications, small multifamily purchases. You know, we did a lot of buy to rent, you know, like a, bought a property, leased it to a tenant, and they eventually bought it from us. So, rent to buy, excuse me, said that backwards. In that. so But that's been our path, and we've got started in Trenton, New Jersey, and still own there, but have since expanded out of Trenton and are in North Carolina, Kentucky, and Lancaster, Pennsylvania now as in operations.
1: Well, thank you for that background. And, you know, one, you wrote the book, Raising Private Capital, and I think we're mm-hmm. in a really interesting time in the marketplace yeah. where, one, we're starting to see headlines that are coming out that large investment groups are suspending distributions, I'm getting write-ins for the show of people saying, hey, like the distributions have stopped and I'm now, yep. you know, fearing that we're getting into the world of potential capital calls. You know, what's your take on the current environment and you know, what should investors be looking out for?
0: Yeah. I think that, you know, the whole capital call thing, we could discuss that if you like, but the whole concept of a capital call to me that is not the end of the world. What that really is, if the operator did good, if they were responsible fiscally with investor capital, you could still have a, a capital call. It just means that, hey, to keep this machine going, I need more money to keep it going. And I'm either going to get it from somebody else or I'm going to get it from you guys, Mr. and Mrs. Investor. In that. So And th- There used to be a time when syndicators would say, we've never done a capital call. And we haven't yet, as DeRosa Group, and I, we may not ever have to do that. Everything we have is fairly cash flush right now. But I have operators that I respect that have had to do it because things pivoted. Things changed quickly in the last year. So they'll kind of, the capital call shouldn't be looked upon as this boogeyman that we should never say the words capital call. Because really, what you're doing is keeping keeping the asset that our investors own with you fiscally, you know, sound and stable. If it, and it needs another injection to keep it going, as long as they show me a business plan as a, as an LP. You know, it, it should be a consideration, you know, but uh, and I uh, you're comment on distributions. Many operators that I respect have, have stopped distributions on certain funds. We have, I think it's somewhere around a dozen active, active funds that are, you know, in several multifamily assets right now. And most of them are still paying out. A few of them have stopped distributions and that, and that's, and I'm not, you know, it's not that I'm not proud of that or whatever. To me, I think as a custodian of investor capital it's one thing to just pay investors every quarter and just keep your, let them keep their eyes closed and not ask questions. And that's a good way to treat. If you're an LP and your GP is sending you very sparse updates and paying you on the button what your pref is, it's possible that GP is just keeping you in the dark. right? We send very thorough investor updates. And when we don't have enough cash flow to pay the distribution, we don't. Right? We don't pay distributions out of operating cash. We don't pay distributions out of, out of cash we have on the shelf. We pay it out of operations from the asset. Sometimes the asset can pay it, sometimes it can't. And if it doesn't, we don't pay it. And it let it accrue until the next quarter and pay investors out. And I think that it takes a lot more courage as a GP to do what's fiscally sound and maybe not pay distributions as long as you're willing to explain to investors what's going on and what the business plan is.
1: Well, I think that's a really great point too, because like, where are the things that, you know, where could the issues be hidden? Right. And I think you called out one that, that was great is that it's possible that you're getting your distributions and like, that's an easy way for an LP or sponsor that's maybe getting in over their head to kind of just buy themselves some time. It's like, well, Hey, look, mm-hmm. it's worth paying. Nobody's going to be asking any questions. And then the, the yep. flip side of that is that when it goes South, it could go South in a hurry because like you burn through any cash or capital yeah. reserves or the capital that you're using, you know, you've intended to do the value add or the renovation.
0: And those LPs are going to get a bucket of cold water in their face. You know, I'm not like calling any specific operator out, but if you are an LP in a syndication that is going upside down and you're not aware of it because the GP is just paying you distributions once a quarter and kind of being a little loosen their investor updates and saying, everything's great. We're doing really well. And you know, then all of a sudden it's like, boom, you know, we need a capital call or even worse, property's gone into cash management, whatever that may be. So I'd rather keep my communications very transparent with investors. Before this call with you, I was talking to one of my investors that has something like a half million dollars with us on one fund we have that is paying out and another one we have that is not. And I told him very transparently what's going on with both. And we had a great conversation and he thanked me at the end of the call for our conservative operations. And I'm not just high-fiving myself. I'm saying that, that the lesson here is that you got to invest with people as an LP that are going to be willing to be transparent and make the difficult decisions about, like, hey, okay, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going on. And we're going to change our business plan if we need to, including not paying distributions for a quarter or two so we can preserve cash to weather whatever's coming in the financial future.
1: Yeah, and I mean, one of the lessons I've learned you know, taking cash or capital from somebody is that left to their own devices, your investors will always paint a picture and it's generally not in your favor. Even if everything is fine, if they think that something might be going wrong, you know, the mind can spiral in a way where you're digging yourself out of a hole that like you didn't even dig yet.
0: (laughs) So the only way that you prevent that is through transparent communications and giving people data, right? If I don't give you enough data, about what's happening behind my walls as an operator. If I don't tell you enough about what's happening there, you are only left to make assumptions and if you're going to make assumptions, you might as you know the fear fear muscle kicks in and you make bad assumptions or bad assumptions about worst case scenario, right? Whether those things could be correct or not. But if I give you real data and real financial reports and bullet-pointed you know, long answers and like, hey, this is where this is, this is is where the plan is, is we're changing, this is why we're being a little fiscally conservative right now, then they can't make too many assumptions because I gave them, I connected the dots for them. And I said, this is where things are. This is the transparency we're going to give you. And we've been very transparent. And I think that the only other way to do that is to keep people happy short-term and really unhappy long-term, but we'd, I'd rather people be a little miffed short-term, like, oh man, I really wish we'd gotten paid. Yeah, I do too. You know, Just so you know, because when <laughs> investors don't get paid, we don't get paid either. right? And so uh, I'm fine with, with having those difficult conversations now to avoid having a really difficult conversation in the future.
1: Yeah. And I think maybe to summarize what you're saying and maybe extrapolate a little bit more for our listeners out there, Is that if you're looking at your investor reporting that's coming to you on investments that you have outstanding and you are having to make mental leaps yourself or make assumptions on what you think is happening, you're probably not getting enough information. Nope.
0: (laughs) Nope. Yeah. And you should ask for it. Right. You know. You should, ask for, you should ask for further data. You know, we get asked for data from our investors and for the most part, we give it to them. I mean, if it's like, you know, confidential, we'll tell you, let's talk about what you really want to, the question really you really have here about, well, you know, and I can help you get your questions answered one way or another. So we'll gladly give more information to people ask for it to help them connect the dots. Now, I've, been, I've been doing this too long and work with too many investors that I've been the custodian of their capital for. And, and this has always been my desire to help them understand what they're in, help them get clarity for where that, for how the money's doing. And that's paid out long-term. Short-term, it takes more courage. Long-term, it pay it, it pays out really well with regards to trust.
1: Yeah. I know I'm, this is not a universal statement, but for me, when I take somebody's money, especially, you know, investment money, retirement money, and I'm putting it to work, that's probably one of the most like, I don't know, I'm gonna say scary is not the right thing, but like the amount of responsibility that I carry there has always been so
0: a tr- reverence you got to have. Yeah, yeah, it's
1: like so yeah. tremendous, and I would like to think that everybody thinks that way, but you know, having been in this business long enough, I know that there's a lot of people that are very transactional in nature. Right? It's like I'll do this deal, boom, we printed some money. Let's go move on to the next deal, and you're not really thinking about it. So that there is. You do have to buyer beware a little bit and, you know, make sure that you're getting the information you need. to your point, if you're trying to connect dots in your head, go ask for it. (laughs) Well, let's switch gears a little bit here. You're still raising capital. You have a strategy Mm -hmm. for 2023. So to timestamp this, we're in, let's say early May of 2023. The market is still really interesting. We're not sure where the Fed rates are going, but the debt market
0: are all over the place. Yeah, what are you doing?
1: Yeah. What are you doing right now?
0: We're still, I mean, I still have faith in, in, in residential housing long-term. And so I think that investments in residential housing long-term will win, but a lot of, a lot of residential housing, mid-sized multifamily projects are drastically overpriced. A lot of times owned by people that are I think, Jake, they're owned by the owners that you and I just talked about that that are not telling their investors anything and just sending out you know generic emails and not giving out financial reports. And they're hoping they can sell their hot potato bad asset for a lot more money. That's what I'm seeing for sale now is the assets that were bought a year ago, two years ago. It's pretty clear these people are just distressed selling in disguise, right? So we're cautiously looking at deals. We're bi- we've bid, it's May now, we've bid just over 100 deals so far are underwritten and turned in bids on some of the 100 that we've looked at and we're in super specific markets. So we're still swinging, but we also haven't done a deal in a long time because because of the market. I think it's been upwards of a year since Doros has bought a multifamily asset. We've bid a lot. We've got all plenty of assets to keep us fed, but we want to grow just like anybody personally i'm invested in a lot of hard money vehicles like just lending people assets money that's collateralized in loans that i can get you know that i can get monthly payments on i love that vehicle so much and i think it's going to become more and more you know forefront you know just investing for cash flow versus investing for appreciation that doros is launching a debt fund that we're going to be doing a lot more hard money in you know with secured debt positions from seasoned operators so we're going to be doing that and also, I still have some passive investments going in syndication, some of my own, of course, but some with operators that I like and trust too. So I think there, what's going to happen, Jake, there's still a lot of deals to be made. And there are some people that are completely just sitting on their hands, waiting on the market to crash. And I don't think that's really what's going to happen. And I don't think that's certainly not how you're going to get a deal. But what I, the way I think you're going to get a deal is to continue to swing. And I'm seeing more and more of my friends that are actually starting to connect on things by being like second buyer, third buyer in line. And for the person that got the contract falls out, isn't able to close. The second buyer gets a shot at it. Maybe they can't do it. And then we'll we'll get a call if we're second or third in place in line. So we're continuing to stay active and to stay engaged. And most importantly, above all else, we're putting a lot of our attention into making sure the current assets we have are very solvent, very healthy. We're pivoting where we need to pivot. Do it, making their, We just refied an asset last month and returned 40% of investor capital. So there's still momentum to be made. You just got to tread a little bit more lightly now than we did a year ago. And we're glad to do that because we're already a conservative outfit already.
1: Well, let's talk about debt, right? I mean, I, th- I think yeah. the debt is driving a lot of the issues in the current environment, meaning one, you can't get any of the interest rates are too high, or, you know, we've got. Capitalism is too low, that's too high. I mean, yeah, we've got banks failing. We have SVB, and then just this past weekend, you know, First Republic, who's been on the watch list, officially failed. And now it's being, you know, gobbled up by JP Morgan, one of the big banks. But you just mentioned a debt strategy. So that's going to be new for the listeners of the show. We haven't really talked a whole mm-hmm. lot about investing in debt. Would, would yep. you mind sharing a little bit about how you look at that?
0: Sure. So Jake, in in up markets, it makes sense. I mean, people made a lot of money investing for appreciation. Over the last 10 years, right? Regardless of where you think the market's going or anything like that, appreciation can put a lot of money in your pocket, but is a very risky investment. I Debt, I've always been a cash flow oriented investor. You can invest for two different things in real estate. You can invest for cash flow, you can invest for appreciation. Appreciation has made a lot of people rich, but appreciation likely is going to be the ghost that you're not going to see for the next five years or so. Debt is a vehicle you can invest in. Now, I get. Some investors are going to say, wait a minute, I want upside. I want a high teen IRR. The only way you get to the high teens in return on investment is through appreciation. But what you can get through debt is a fixed, secure investment. Bear in mind, the higher return you make, the the higher return that's being quoted for an investment, the higher the risk that you're intrinsically taking more people would make that investment and and that would drive the price of it down and make our price of it up and make the returns even lower. So it's like a supply demand thing, right? So higher risk investments have higher returns, lower risk investments, such as debt, tend to have lower returns. So we're quoting, you know, debt, we're looking at debt that's going to make yield investors and us between nine and 11%, which is nowhere near compared to multifamily. But what I like about debt check is it produces day one. If I invest in a debt asset or a debt vehicle, which we already have going right now, I can produce a check the first day of investment. Now show me a multifamily asset that's going to produce 9% the first day of its investment. You show me that and I'll show you an operator who's doing what you and I referred to earlier, which is sending investors their own money back or just paying a pref to keep investors blind. Syndications just don't do those kinds of things, but debt does because you're investing in something that has collateral, which AKA is something that I can take back if the, inv- if the operator doesn't pay. And it's got a monthly payment associated to it. Yes, that monthly payment's not going to be 15, 16, 17, 18%, because I'm not a credit card company. I'm just a a lender. And we're lending that money out to either operators that are looking to get from A to B, sometimes smaller operators, folks doing fix and flips, folks doing burr strategies. Sometimes you can do MES debt, which is a position where you're going to a multifamily operator and giving them a second position bridge to get them out of the position that they're in. Maybe they need some capital to round the corner, to round second base, so to speak. But these debt vehicles are secured by something. A lot of times personal guarantee, perhaps secured by the general partner's equity position. So if they default, they lose their equity in the deal, the general partner does, or they just lose the property itself through a mortgage foreclosure that they may be subject to. Those are the collateral that's there, but we don't want to take anything back from anybody. I just want to help operators get to their goal and make a fair rate of return for me and my investors in that vehicle. So we're putting the debt on the street with collateralized assets and monthly payments. And investors are happy because they're getting cash flow day one. I'm happy because I'm getting cash flow day one. And I'm also happy because I feel like I'm in a nice secure vehicle for my investors. And I think that, Jake, we're, the, the language moving forward for the next couple of years is going to be cash flow and security. And if I can provide cash flow and security to investors, a debt fund is the way to do it. I really like that strategy.
1: And I guess, you know, maybe one further question along the debt front is, Sure, are you in a position where the assets that you are investing in, that you could actually step in and take over in the event that like there is a true default? Or are you stretching a little bit further outside of that that wheelhouse?
0: currently I'm only stepping and I'm only in assets and I'm only, so I'll give you even further. I'm only in assets where there is a, where I can take the asset if there's a clear default. So that's like first, second mortgage position, right? That's number one. And number two, I'm only in states that you can execute that that debt vehicle fairly quickly. There's some states that can take three to four years to execute a foreclosure. And there's, some, there's a vehicle called a deed in lieu of foreclosure, which just means that if I lend the money to Joe Smith over here and he stops making payments, instead of me foreclosing, he's already agreed to give up his deed if he goes into default. That's called a deed in lieu of foreclosure. That vehicle is not legal in a lot of states. So we don't work in those states where it's not legal because then I can take the asset back pretty quickly if I need it. Or if, he, if Joe Smith defaults, which, you know, God forbid, hope he doesn't. And we invest in, we're, I'm only going to give Joe Smith, but so much money. Uh, I'm only going to do lower loan to value notes. I need to see Joe Smith's skin in the game, too. He has to have cash going into the project on his own. He doesn't get to show up at closing with nothing but a smile and a, a pen. He has to bring money to closing. And he's also going to be personally guaranteed. So, and we only work with operators that have a significant deal flow. So, this is not, we are not the lender for flippers that have this like first flip. I want to see a flipper that's got like seven flips going on, that has a business plan, their own crew, focus on certain markets, maybe in-house brokerage, those kinds of things. There's plenty of flippers out there that are professional business owning fix and flippers, not just somebody doing it as a hobby.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think it's super helpful too because there's a lot of institutions that you know of today that are big name institutions that actually started off in the debt market, right? And ended up owning assets. And then as a result of... You know some of these defaults. That was the transition point for their actual real estate business. And I'm not saying again to your point, like the intent is there. There's some sharks out there that are hoping you default so they get to take equity. But you know when you are in a position where you actually could step in and say like I can finish this and see it through. Like there's there's actually a lot. There's more upside in that if it goes in that direction for a lot of these projects. So I think. And I, and I
0: don't ever. I've never had to take anything back. I've had investors. I've had borrowers going to default. But then they round the corner and pay me back. I've had fairly shrewd lender friends of mine say, "I sure hope they go into default." Not because I want to take the property back, but your default rate goes from like twelve up to like eighteen percent. You know, the rate of return goes up really high on the investment, and they don't. Well, the operator doesn't want to lose the asset. They don't want to owe you more than they have to. So they're going to find a way to get you out if they go into default. But as you said. You know, we're a well-seasoned machine, well-equipped. If I've got to take the asset over because they completely fold up shop and walk away and take their ball and go home, we can certainly take the asset over and finish it. So, so that I want to do that, and we're not in business to do that. Like you said, there are lenders out there that are crossing their fingers and hope that the borrower defaults. That's not us, we hope they win. Because so I want them to come back and win again and again. There, there are people's livelihoods at stake here. Like mm-hmm. there are crew, their crews, you know, they're trying to deliver a product, be that a home for sale or a home for lease or whatever it is. I want them to put that product on the market and give me my money back so I can give it back to them and do again, do a deal again and again. But if they default, that's okay. We apply yeah. that that's just we just jump to plan B, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, well, Matt, as
1: we finish all of my shows, I like to finish with gratitude, right? Because somebody Mm -hmm. gave us a leg up along the way that we probably didn't deserve, or just you know gave you a shot, looked at you and said, "Yep, I'm willing," right? And I wanted to give you an opportunity to maybe give a public shout out to somebody or a group of somebodies that did that for you.
0: Oh yeah, man! I I I've never told him the story. He probably I don't know if he remembers or not, but it's Brandon Turner. And when Liz and I first wanted to work for Bigger Pockets to write articles for them, and that writing articles turned into going on the podcast when their guest hands they had a guest cancel on a day's notice. My wife and I, and they called my wife and I saying, Hey, do you guys want to go on the podcast? And we said, Yes, absolutely. And that was show number 88, and that really opened up the floodgates for us. But before that, we wrote articles for Bigger Pockets, Liz and I both did for over a year. And to get to that position of writing articles, we had to have a conference call with Brandon. And, you know, this is when Bigger Pockets is a very small organization, but he took a shot on us. And he believed that we had enough experience and enough stories to tell and that we would be interesting enough for the Bigger Pockets audience, which they needed more folks to write articles because it was a small organization then, believe it or not. And we, and they took a shot on us. And a funny joke here, Jake, is that the entire phone call, that I was on with Brandon. I kept calling the organization Better Pockets. And Brandon, I think has enough sense of humor and enough forgiveness and grace that he did not call me, never called me out on it. I look, I looked out on my phone. My wife is blowing me up on text messages going, idiot, it's Bigger Pockets, fool, it's Bigger Pockets. You know. So I finally got it right in that, but I'm really grateful for the shot that he gave Liz and I, and we never looked back since.
1: I love that story. And, you know, Brandon, I hope at some point you listen to this and you get to hear that. And, you know, it really is there. All of us have gotten to where we are because somebody gave us a shot. Right. And then we stepped up and took advantage of it and made them proud. So, Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. I think, especially in this time and all the work that you've done and raising capital, like the message is going to be tremendously valuable.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and I'd actually love for you to contribute to a future episode. If you have a question you'd like answered or a topic or a guest to bring on the show, please email me at jake at the Now I realize there's a lot of lingo that's thrown around on these shows. So I've created a cheat sheet for you with the top 26 terms that come up most often. Head on over to thelimitedpartner.com forward slash lingo for the list. Enjoy. And we'll see you next time.